0: Welcome to the Infinite Spark of Being podcast. My name is Keith Welsh, and in this episode, I'm going to expand a bit more on allegory and attempt to put some sort of a bow on this to my satisfaction, at least. Um, but before we get into all that, if you'd like to support the ongoing creation of the Infinite Spark of Being and all that that entails, you can do that at the theinfinitesparkofbeing.com, where you can find links to the book's t-shirts, tank tops, hoodies, art prints, all that stuff, as well as a Patreon link that will allow you to pledge $1 or $5 a month to the Infinite Spark of Bean. So, here we are, more on allegory, let's get started. Now I'm probably gonna repeat myself a lot, but I think it's gonna be necessary. So I apologize in advance. Also I'm gonna do my best to make sense of this and I'm probably gonna go a bit slow Um, I have a lot of bullet points. I have a lot to cover and I'm gonna try to do this without upsetting a lot of you because lately I've gotten a lot of really wild DMS a lot of nice ones, but some of them it's like I don't know why you're that mad. Anyway, um, but let's just jump right into it. All of these systems, meaning, when I say system, means spiritual paths, religions, whatever, use punishment and reward, right? And though some of you believe that Buddhism is this free-for-all, it's not. Buddhism at times uses punishment. Well, fuck. Tibetan Buddhism always uses punishment and reward, right? The punishment of taking birth in a hell realm or the reward of, I don't know, enlightenment, nirvana, whatever, um, or merging into the white light, whatever the thing is, that's still punishment and reward. So I try to see things as fractals, and I believe that it helps me make sense of or understand the nature of something. It's kind of like um, those SAT questions, blank is to blank as blank is to blank, right? I've found that by looking at the way social media amazon or whatever uses their algorithm i can better understand the nature of my own mind for instance things that get the most interaction move further up my feed i see more of them i see more of them more often i see similar things more often why because like attracts like and we've all heard that Uh, Probably during one of our desperate moments on YouTube trying to figure out how to manifest a more pleasurable life. (laughs) Well, that's the way algorithms work. And that's how the subconscious mind works. Again, if I click on or interact with something like running shorts, for instance, then the algorithm will move uh, similar things up or um, things that are adjacent to running shorts. Right. They'll move them further up my feed. Um, If I'm interested in running, not only will I see shorts, but I'll see supplements and shoes, right? So similarly, by understanding the allegory of these uh, stories, I can better understand the nature of my own mind and the way uh, these various components like ego, heart, soul interact with each other. So try this. Uh, Look at the Ramayana. Ravana is to Sita as ego is to the heart. The way Ravana stole Sita, uh, Vishnu's heart, Ram's wife, Ram being the soul, ego steals the heart, separates the heart from the soul, makes it hard for the heart and soul to connect. In fact, there might have to be a battle to steal the heart back from the ego and so, in order to get the soul and the heart together, right? So another way that I've benefited from seeing these uh, these texts as allegory is that I've gained a better or more helpful, at least for me, understanding of God through various literature, um, namely the Vedas. By understanding the allegory a bit more, um, it's helped. You know, seeing Krishna as my higher self or my highest potential. That being said, I don't see Krishna. Um, Krishna is still Krishna. Like in occultism, a a spiritual spirituality, all of this stuff asks that you, at times, have to hold two opposed ideas in the mind at the same time and kind of live in kind of a gray area and use what you need when you need it. Now, when I mention these books as allegory, some people got really upset. They got really defensive. Um, some believe the allegory takes credibility away from these texts They believe that it takes the mysticism away from them. Well, as I mentioned before, I'm not going to argue or try to prove anything. This is my understanding, whether it vibes with you or it doesn't. No hard feelings, at least least not from my end, right? I'm here sharing my understanding. Some of you dig it, some of you don't. Now, if you feel really strongly about your point of view, well, that's interesting. And you should probably take a look at that. You know, why are some of you so interested in changing my mind? Why can't you just unfollow me or unsubscribe? Are you so altruistic that you're, you know, going to save me somehow? So I'll remind you, I am a Luciferian reptile, um, and I'm part of the Illuminati's agenda to bring about the birth of the Antichrist. I'm a heretic, so don't ever forget that. I'm a heathen, and I should never be listened to. So... You know, don't forget that. Um, anyway, back to allegory. Now, speaking of reptiles, I'm going to drift into something that will surely result in some sort of conflict. But let's look at this good old New Age t- uh, a tale of Pleiadians and draconian reptiles in the battle for the hearts and minds of what seems to mostly be Westerners. So, um, a lot of uh, this information about this topic. Uh, a, a lot of these concepts that are prevalent in um, new in the New Age movement come from people with a very cursory knowledge of Western pagan mysticism that seems to be coming from channelers. Now in full disclosure before you some of you are already upset, I do enjoy the Seth material as well as a course in miracles. So, if you don't know what the Seth material is, or A Course in Miracles, and you just got mad because you think I'm about to talk shit about channelers, you should probably do some homework. Um, so whatever I'm saying next about this channeling stuff, I'm also referring to those. Again, gray area, you hold two opposing ideas in your mind at the same time, and you can go ahead and call me a hypocrite, I give a shit. But I'm, I'm also referring to Seth and A Course in Miracles. Now, I'm going all the way back to theosophy, the Vril Society, all of that stuff, when I say channelers seem to be the root of most of this. Um, Please understand that I'm not discounting their effects on spiritual culture, but we need to look closely at these things, right? We need to be able to take them apart, set them on fire, and hammer on them, and be snarky and shitty about it. Um, or at least look closely at them on our own time, right? Or your own time. God knows I don't even have the slightest bit of interest in doing that here. But what I will touch on is the Theosophical Society or what's known as Theosophy. And as a disclaimer, this is going to be one of those episodes, um, a do-your-own-homework-before-you-DM-me-crazy-shit-please topic. Um, and really, it's going to require actual homework. But uh, for all of the benefit that Blavatsky did by turning Western culture onto many of these topics, her sources are suspect. Suspect at best. I mean, you know, look at her. You expect me to believe that this out-of-shape, rotund human with dropsy climbed all of those mountains to retrieve all of those texts to do all of that homework And those monasteries were like... Sure. Some of them, they, apparently they just gave her some of these, you know, they were like, you're up here. Fuck it. Take it. Like i it's hard to believe. Right. So what are we left with? The Mahatmas. <laughs> we are left with the Mahatmas. Um, if you've ever taken a dive into Blavatsky, I hope you're at least chuckling. You went through the same thing as me you reading it like, what in the fuck? <laughs> it's just... Um, a friend of mine, um, Yanni, was asking me about them, and I said, go ahead and read them if you want to further alienate yourself at parties and make yourself even more difficult to hang out with. <laughs> so um, these beings that supposedly were visiting her and educating her or giving her these downloads of information... Um, some people describe them as, I'm trying to gather all my thoughts on this. Some people describe them as ascended masters that were flesh and bone. And some say it was telepathic, whatever. It was a fucking mess either way. But this kind of starts this tradition in the Western spiritual culture of people having what seems to be an unexplainable knowledge. She definitely knew something, right? Everyone from Neville Goddard to Carlos Castaneda to the OTO to Blavatsky referenced these others that were apparently teaching them or feeding them information. Um, Like Carlos Castaneda is a classic. He's such a problematic is probably an understatement, but his books, I mean, personally, amazing. Some of the most important shit I've ever read in my life. But whether Don Juan Matus was a real person, I have no fucking idea, right? And I'll get more into what why I think people do this. But it's interesting because if you just forget about these beings that are supposedly making these visits, what you have is information that's not entirely wrong. I mean... Yeah. You know, uh Emmanuel, uh, this bean channeled by, or I guess I think it was a collection of beans or something like that. It was channeled by a woman named Pat Rodegast. Uh Ramdas references Emmanuel and Pat Rodegast a lot. There is a Pat Rodegast Emmanuel thing on YouTube that was supposedly from the Emmanuel DVD. Um, and Ramdas does the introduction and he makes a really good point. He says something to the effect that whether Pat is actually channeling this being or whether she's tapping into a deeper part of herself or whether she's just making it up, it's all correct information, right? It, sometimes you just got to disregard the teacher and go with the teaching. Um, and this means that it measures up to much older texts, right? And the thing that I... Measure, uh, measure most things up to is the Vedas, because that culture knew so much unexplainably. Like, the things that they knew was insane. But it's anyway, it's very interesting. I mean, some of Lovatsky's stuff, in my opinion, is complicated for the sake of being complicated, but whatever. Um, then what we also have in this Western spiritual culture are bodies of spiritual information that are supposedly channeled by Bodiless beings in some other dimension or on some other plane to individuals that didn't do well um, and felt unheard in a previous pursuit in their life. And now they are suddenly channeling Zorlock from the star system G65. And go figure, Zorlock says that love is the answer. And eventually, Zorlock channels so much information to this person, probably in a turtleneck and a poncho, that they have to write a book to contain it all. And then, lo and behold, you must then purchase that book. I can't talk shit. I fucking sell books. So... I don't know, man, but (laughs) that's the root of all this new age culture. I struggle with this stuff. But as I said, I love the Seth material. When I say I love the Seth material, this is an understatement. I spoke to a woman the other night that said, you know, I really like the Seth material. I'd never, ever heard anyone else say that in my life. And I was giddy knowing that somebody out there also was privy to this. Anyway, um, I'm also, like I said, also fond of A Course in Miracles and that book has forced, it's like it's alive, it has forced its way into my life in a funny way. Anyway, so this is where my mind takes something that is already unbelievable and makes it even more unbelievable. So strap in, buckle up. Uh, my my uh, buddy, Troy, that I work with every day of my life, he, always, he has this rule that if I'm about to say something really wild, I have to raise my left hand, so if you could see, for the rest of this episode, my left hand is in the air. Anyway, well, let's, uh, let's start with this. Um, we understand that the subconscious mind uses symbols to tell the body how to feel, I've said this a hundred times, meaning that what we see, smell, touch, taste, and hear sends a signal into our nervous system, which we then interpret as pleasure or pain, good or bad or whatever, Um, like mom is a symbol for me, right? Krishna, God, ocean, they all kind of vibe with me, you know? So these symbols, um, they're very complicated, right? Like look at something like God and what that means to a person. It could mean safety, love, acceptance. It could mean the opposite of that. You know, it might remind someone of being a child, being protected by their parents. See, it's very complicated, right? So we understand that the subconscious mind uses symbols to tell the body how to feel. Then the subconscious mind, or I'm sorry, the conscious mind steps in And by using imagination and fantasy, it elaborates on the sensations that got stirred up by these symbols that the subconscious mind is using to get the body to feel and essentially do something about something to either get more of that feeling or less of that feeling. And I know that this might sound cold and clinical, but only... It's only cold and clinical if we forget the holy and spiritual nature of what's happening here. Remember, the mind is the subtle body and the soul is using that to interface with the meat body and in turn, all of three-dimensional reality in order to work out its karma or curriculum. Don't forget that. Um, I'm trying not to digress too far. Bear with me. Um, I'm going somewhere, I promise. So... (laughs) We have that understanding about symbols and the mind. Now let's look at the concept again of Indra's net of jewels. So every intersection on this net is a being that has taken birth, multiverse even, right? Each of these intersections in this net is connected by the same string essentially, right? Um, Another way, uh, you know, The best explanation, I think I've already told you, was the spider web covered in dew drops, and each of those droplets reflects one another over and over and over again, reflecting each other. So, really, Indra's net of jewels is basically a way of understanding or getting a sense of the interconnectivity of all beings, right? That makes sense. Okay. Um, so, <laughs> it's, I'm taking the long way around here. Now, let's look at Jung's idea of the collective unconscious. Um, This is the idea of like shared memory or experience or that there are certain concepts that we all share or that we all have access to. Also included in that are things like ancestral memory or what we now call epigenetics. So back to the mind using symbols. If the mind is using symbols to tell the body how to feel, wouldn't it stand to reason based on this idea of the collective unconscious that we all share a lot of the same symbols. Of course it would, right? Um, So think about past generations. Um, There goes another race car. (laughs) Think about a um, a tree of symbols. Each generation is adding to those branches. So each generation is interacting with more and more symbols. So the the tree is growing. Right. Um, I was talking to someone today, uh, and I was telling them that one time I envisioned the subconscious mind as this kind of fluid, amorphous gearbox that looked like a kind of a um, a, uh, a grandfather clock with like billions of gears. Right, and each gear turns each gear, and each gear is important, and each gear affects each other, all the other gears. And then, as we learn, more gears kind of get molded or morphed into it, and the the movement, right, like a like a watch movement, becomes more and more complicated, right? So, what if we all had access to that? And then, over time, we have access to more and more symbols and more and more knowledge, and that and that collective unconscious or collective subconscious, if you will, uh, grows like that tree. Now. Back to Indra's Net of Jewels. If we apply Jung's idea of the collective unconscious to Indra's Net of Jewels, this takes us out of our generational stuff, which is genetics, and into a much more broader place, or at least at the risk of sounding like a uh, flaky hippie, uh, the human family or the multiverse of beings taking birth on a continuum. As this continuum goes, the symbols grow. Okay, now back to channeling. Um, You didn't think I'd make it back here, did you? Much less back to the allegory. But again, please bear with me. I realize I sound like a lunatic. Now, uh, or or a heretic, um, a, a, a Luciferian reptile working for the Illuminati, trying to bring about the Antichrist. Don't forget that. So if you listen to the rest of this podcast, that's on you, man. I told you. I told you I was a reptile working for the Illuminati. So what's really interesting about a lot of these ancient texts is that when you read about the people that wrote them, there's always a paranormal bend to it. Um, A great example would be uh, Vyasa, the author of the Mahabharata. uh, He asked Ganesh to transcribe it as he spoke. And the legend has it that Ganesh was reading, reading Vyasa's thoughts as he was writing the words before Vyasa spoke them. So again, we are back to this theme of humans accessing these other beings in order to write these books or some sort of a relationship with something outside of them. Um, Sometimes I wonder if this happens because it's too unbelievable to the average person that we as humans at times have access to information outside of our current awareness, right? Like you think of Neville Goddard had his teacher, I can't remember the guy's name, but nobody ever met this person, right? He would just talk about this teacher and... I feel that he did it to give validity to what he was saying because essentially he was, I think, a costume designer, you know, and like, why would this costume designer have all of this information? Like, how did he just access this? Right? How does Neville Goddard have access to it? How could it be so real? How could he be so accurate? And He's just a costume designer. Well, Maybe Neville thought that. And so he said, you know, I've got this wild teacher and this guy told me this, you know. And in my mind, it's akin to when people that have experienced something paranormal, uh, when they lie or kind of fudge information in order to make their case because they believe the ends will justify the means. You know, like, like, look, this this is so unbelievable that I have to kind of make up other stories to make it seem, un- uh, to make it seem believable. Um And, you know, I always dance around my own experiences when it comes to sharing them, but I can definitely say that there are times that I feel like thoughts are being downloaded into my mind or concepts that I've found hard to explain suddenly get attached to these analogies that I can use to explain myself. But it never feels like I poured over something and worked really hard and figured it out. It just happens. It's like a flow state, right? Like an alpha flow state. And that flow state always feels like it's tapping into an abundant vein of resources. A lot of you know what I mean. Um, It's that old idea of being visited by the muse, right? The muse comes to you and suddenly you have access to all this creative thinking. Uh, Bob Dylan hinted at it when he'd say that he didn't write his songs. They, They were given to him or something to that effect. Well, what if, right? What if the collective unconscious or the muse is like a cloud server and it's filled with folders and based on what we need at that time or what we're ripe for at that moment will give us access to a particular folder and everything inside of it. It's like our minds are vibrating at a certain frequency at that moment that matches one of those folders on this server and it causes the folder to open and begin downloading its contents into our mind, giving us access to the data. Back to that gear thing, right? With all those gears like a grandfather clock, like that's the information merging and becoming, this movement's becoming more complicated and more rich in information. So. How does this get us back to allegory? Um, Let's look at the mind's use of symbols again. Now, let's suppose that there's an individual receiving information through what they perceive as a channel or who knows. uh, They start to see pictures or receive information about these high-thinking, compassionate Pleiadians that have a deeper understanding of the nature of reality, and they're trying to perfect or protect this fledgling planet Earth uh, in this dimension from what is seen as the evil race of reptiles. So this individual decides to share this information. Now, what do you think will sow more conflict in this person's life? Uh, trying to convince others that star people are trying to save us from the evil reptiles, some of which are native to Earth and others live off-world. You didn't think I'd know that, did you? And only seek to enslave us and keep us sick. And the only way we can defeat these evil reptiles is by taking the advice of our benevolent Pleiadian star system neighbors and start loving one another. Or... An alternative view might be, what if we understand that this tale that seems to have been downloaded into their consciousness from the collective unconscious is actually an allegory that uses a formula that has been implemented since time immemorial to teach us that within our minds is a higher self and a lower self reptile brain, and that the more we identify with the higher self, less with the reptile brain, the more we see ourselves as higher beings, the better chance we have of getting along with one another and not feeding into our baser, lower level instincts that seem to always create more problems for ourselves and keep us enslaved to our senses. Which of those do you think is going to cause less problems at Thanksgiving dinner? Anyway, now you might say, you you didn't think I'd get back to allegory, did you? I didn't think I'd get back to allegory, to be fucking honest with you. Now, you might say, Keith, they must know that we're being enslaved by the government, by evil reptile races, by the grays, the globals, whatever. We got to tell them. We got to let them know. But my response to you is and always will be what's more important getting people to believe your beliefs, your stories, etc? Or is it more important that people begin to learn compassion, work with the mind, and know that they are far more empowered than they were told, taught, or could even realize? Aren't the solutions to all of these problems, whether you It's globalists or fucking reptiles. I don't know. Aren't the solutions to quote unquote evil always the same regardless of which religion or belief structure you're adhering to? Isn't the solution always stillness, compassion, love, and understanding? Isn't uh, isn't Krishna teaching Arjuna the same thing that Buddha taught his followers? Aren't the Kurus just the reptiles and the Pandavas, the Pleiadians? Could you say that Pontius Pilate is the scared small ego that would rather pretend it doesn't care about being loved rather than put itself on the line and risk another heartbreak? What's more important? All of these problems have the same thing. What if I don't believe your story about Pleiadians, but I still have compassion, love, and understanding? Do I still reap the benefit? Right? Like you look at the teachings of Jesus. What if I don't believe that there was a man that actually lived, that died on a cross because he actually was God? I can't even get into it. But what if I don't believe that, but I just follow the teachings? You know what most people will tell you, or not most. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that. A lot of people tell it doesn't matter. You no, know my mom used to say you don't get to heaven by good deeds alone. You gotta believe. So what's more important? Proving that the battlefield of kurukshetra and the Bhagavad Gita was real. Or is it more important to digest the teachings that Krishna was trying to teach Arjuna? Is it is it more important to prove that Krishna is the most powerful incarnation of Vishnu so that people will listen to the teaching and do as he says so that people can learn? What's more important? Or is it okay for people to read the Gita as an allegory that teaches us that we are Krishna? We are the ultimate stillness and compassion at our core. But due to the forgetful nature of the human birth, sometimes we have to remind the scared small ego, Arjuna, that it's okay, go on, be still, because no matter what, we're always okay. What's more important? You know, um, a, lot gets, a lot of this gets lost when we try to prove the reality or facts of these texts. Something doesn't have to be objectively true or real in order for it to change us or heal us. You know, we, we lose a lot of the spiritual potency when we try to make ourselves special or make others special and unique. Um, you know, at times we can access that cloud server that is our collective unconscious or subconscious and receive a download of symbols that we can use to express our ideas to others That might be in a place to hear it or feel it or whatever, whatever we're trying to say. And just, if they don't hear it or feel it, that's fine too. Because that's kind of where I'm at. I'm just throwing seeds in the air. Um, It's part of our evolutionary psychology to want to be convincing and right. Um, At times, we feel that we need to scare others in order to get them on board with our beliefs. And I think we do this because we identify so closely with our belief systems, whether it's crypto, gun laws, Jesus, Joe Biden masks, and that for others to deny our belief system is for them to deny us. And since that's the case, not only do I, we identify with our belief systems, but we also identify others as their belief systems. Do you see what I'm saying? That's a fucking problem. And just, uh, and I look, I just believe that this could have all been avoided if we'd only understood that God is who we are at our core, our higher self, our true nature, our highest potential. The devil is the adversary that creates the problems and mayhem in these texts, uh, it's it's who we are when we lose touch with our higher self or act less than our highest potential. Birth and death happen from moment to moment and day to day, heaven and hell, uh, higher birth, lower birth, and the punishments and rewards are all what happens from moment to moment depending on how closely we live to our higher self or highest potential. And finally, the rituals The practices, the prayers, the mantras are all there to keep us in that state of mind that leaves us open to possibility and serves as a reminder that what we are trying to liberate is ourselves from our own lower nature. So that's it. That's the last of Allegory. I hope this was helpful. I hope that you found it beneficial as usual. If you have questions, comments, or suggestions, feel free to reach out. I'll always respond. You know it. I'll call you. You give me that phone number, I'll call you. You'll get a call and we'll talk for a couple hours. It happens. And as I mentioned before, uh, if you'd like to support the ongoing creation of the Infinite Spark of Being and all those, uh, all of its facets, please do that at the theinfinitesparkofbeing.com where there's a link to the Patreon where you can uh, donate money. Uh, there's a link to the books, t-shirts, tank tops, posters. And as usual, don't forget, you can always reach out and talk to me. We are old friends. Don't be weird about it. Bye.